How good is AI perceiving people's emotions? The technology is getting better and better in terms of picking up on the cues and reading them mostly accurately. So today we have Anita Woolley, who is here from Carnegie Mellon's Tepper School of Business. Anita was named one of the most influential organizational psychologists. Anita is a teacher at the highest degree of teacherhood. She studied at Harvard University uh, and got her doctorate there in education. We also have papers published in Science, National Academy of Sciences, Academy of Management Review, Organizational Science. I mean, the list could just go on and on. How about the metaverse? Because <laughs> I know that you're also getting into in the metaverse too. So where do you think future of the like teams within the metaverse? Well, I think it's really exciting. I mean, clearly there's some kind of kooky stuff going on, but. <laughs> Speaking about AI, have you heard about like, you know, Elon Musk, and then I think the godfather of AI too, um, Jeffrey Hinton, they both are saying that AI should be halted until there's more regulation and clarity. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think the genie is out of the bottle. So um, I, I completely sympathize with kind of what they're trying to do. But um, I think that uh, I don't know that it's ever going to be centrally regulated. Um, I think it's really going to have to be more of a cultural community, social norms kind of approach, because how do you stop everybody from completely um you know, creating new technology, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. demand for it. Um, I think the market will probably speak um, regardless of what we might try to do to keep it from happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I know that also, you know, there's kind of a lot of competition, you know, not, not only between like organizations here in the US, but also in China. So it's almost like an you know, people are saying it's like an arms race, you know, which society mm -hmm. can come up with uh, better AI technology faster. So, right. um, so yeah, you're definitely spot on with like the genie is out of the bottle. And at this point, it's like, what can you do really? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, each organization needs to d define its standards, its norms, its, you know, operating principles, right. Um, in terms of its contract with its employees and its customers and other stakeholders and how it's going to make use of these technologies, hopefully to enhance the quality of, of life and, and what they deliver, you know, for everybody involved, for all the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, just to kind of piggyback on that, you know, I know some of your research is in using AI to enhance team performance. So can you just kind of share a little bit about some of the findings that you've, you know, made in those mm -hmm. um, research studies so far? Sure. And I mean, we're just at the beginning. I feel like we're just scratching the surface. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, just I guess to give a little context, uh, there's a, a lot, of course, of technology, AI based and otherwise now that is really helping people do things either more efficiently or more effectively or both. So we often think of these as production technologies. So now we have chat GPT. If I want to write a letter, you know, I can put some stuff into there and it spits out whatever, right? Or a paper or whatever. Um, 
but uh, what we haven't explored as much, but where I think my me and my collaborators think there's a lot of opportunity is in coordination technology. You know, how can we actually use AI technology to make it easier to collaborate with other people, to coordinate our inputs, to produce things that we can't produce on our own, but we can produce by drawing on, you know, the expertise of other people. And so in our work on collective intelligence, we've been working for over a decade now, uh, really getting into what are the processes that characterize groups that are really effective, that are really collectively intelligent? How is it that they pool their knowledge? How is it that they uh, prioritize and, you know, kind of build on each other's capacity to be able to accomplish more? And then how could we incorporate AI-based tools into collaboration platforms uh, in a way that would help teams do that even more effectively, maybe with larger groups uh, that are even more distributed, um, et cetera. So, you know, even we know now, even setting the time for a meeting can be a challenge, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because of all of the different coordination issues, time zones, et cetera. You know, what if those things became trivial or maybe we could even do more without needing to get together at the same time um, and could do more things asynchronously. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to come when we figure out how to solve the problems of coordination using the technologies that are being developed. Hmm. So what are some of like the technologies or tools that you've seen and maybe some examples that really help in the collaboration between team members? So some of the things we've done, and again, this is kind of the beginning of our work um, looking at this, have really looked at, okay, how can we use technology to prompt teams to pay attention to some things that might be hindering them that they could do more effectively? So one of the areas is using knowledge and skill. I don't know if you've been in a team before where you're, you're in a meeting, you're working on a problem, and you know, you know that some people know a lot about the problem, but they're not the ones doing all the talking or they're not the ones taking the lead, but nobody's really saying anything about the fact that like the way we're doing this doesn't make any sense, or maybe we don't even know what we're trying to do. And so what we've experimented with are some tools that sort of you know, in the background, know who knows what, or are kind of keeping track of how different people are contributing and might prompt the group when it seems like things are not really aligned, right? Mm. Sort of say, hey, let's hold up a minute. You know, what is it we're trying to do here? Or, um, hmm, you know, Anita's trying to uh, edit the podcast, but, you know, maybe she's not the best one. Maybe this should be Fong's role, <laughs> right? Mm. Because mm -hmm. uh, this is something he has expertise in. And so just kind of helping facilitate the process where maybe social norms or people's inhibitions kind of trip us up. Okay, so that's just one example. Mm -hmm. um, there could be, uh, I think, a lot of opportunities that we're thinking about where, okay, maybe uh, there's a large group of people that you need to get input on input from on some um, situation, but it, again, it's impossible to set up a meeting. How could we gather that input asynchronously in a way that is really engaging and draws together the inputs and facilitates the process uh, so that we get everybody's opinion, we get their feedback, we get their buy-in, we get their you know commitment to the decision process without being bound up by who can be at the meeting or um, not being able to move forward because we can't pull together a meeting. 
So it's mm. another area that I think there's a lot of opportunity for. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. So do you think, I think one of your areas of research is teams having a technology aversion, you know, some teams having a technology aversion, especially as a facilitating sort of AI. So can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, well, in fact, that's the something that we kind of got into in many ways by accident, because what we uh, have discovered, I think, um, again and again, is that it's a lot easier to mess up a team with technology than it is to help it. Um, and so just as uh, people don't necessarily like AI to come in and take over their job at work, a lot of times people, humans feel like, you know, they are pretty good at making social judgments. And so if this, you know, bot is showing up and trying to tell them how to manage relationships or how to behave, they don't necessarily like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have had, um, uh, experiments where we thought, oh, well, here's a helpful intervention. Uh, one uh, example was um, something that a lot of uh, groups might worry about, especially student groups uh, might worry about is whether everybody is doing their share of the work. And so mm -hmm. if you are working together online, you can't necessarily see what everybody's doing. And so everybody might be afraid, well, gee, you know, is everybody pulling their weight? So we uh, built a little feedback, uh, real-time feedback sort of display that showed all the team members, like how much everybody was contributing with the idea that maybe if somebody was isn't contributing as much, well, then they would be sort of like pressured into contributing more and that might improve the group's work. Mm -hmm. Well, what we found in this one study is that it totally backfired because mm -hmm. the person who was not contributing as much felt, I don't know, like mad, shamed, embarrassed. So they withdrew, but all, so did the people who were doing all the work because they were mad that nobody mm -hmm. else was doing the work and pretty much the group imploded, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just a very simple, low level kind of in technological intervention, but definitely backfired. Um, you know, there are, you know, other examples, I think, from us and from others, uh, definitely, again, whenever you're trying to give people advice about how to interact with other people, um, and the advice is coming not from a person, uh, you can get some pretty um, big reactions. <laughs> hmm. Wow, that is interesting. So we know that AI tools can be really helpful, you know, be great facilitators. So how do you get buy-in, you know, let's say for that person that was slacking, right? How do you get that person to buy in that the AI is actually a good tool that will help the group overall? Well, I think in that setting, because hindsight's always 2020, we've thought, oh, you know, if we go back and do that experiment, uh, maybe giving that feedback privately to the person, mm. more mm. like uh, a coach, you know, this is your mm. friend, this is right. your little like, you know, mentor, kind of like, hey, you know, you're doing pretty well, but you could, you know, maybe amp it up a little bit, you know, because look, your other team members are kind of working a little harder and they're really relying on you, that kind of thing versus right. like the public shaming um, mm -hmm. approach. So that might be one way to, to kind of make it more of a personal coach versus mm -hmm. a public sort of performance um, evaluation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when I was a sales leader in college, um, I had a team of, you know, salespeople that I, you know, led. And whenever I, you know, I learned that whenever you have uh, feedback 
on ways that someone can improve, you give it in private. And whenever you have praise, you give it in public in front of everybody, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so it's mm-hmm. like tailoring that AI yeah. is the same. <laughs> Yeah, no, and it it totally makes sense. Um, and I guess it's just a matter also of, you know, I've I've observed a lot of coaches over time also because I've studied teamwork for for quite a while. Um, mm-hmm. and I've always been intrigued by coaches, especially coaches who are are really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think probably coaches often figure out quickly what motivates people, and there are some people who. Mm-hmm really aren't going to listen to you unless the message is loud and maybe even public. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I'd agree with what you're saying that the the general um, conventional wisdom works for most, which is that, um, you know, constructive criticism um, or developmental feedback is better done privately. Mm-hmm. So in your experience, how good is AI with perceiving people's emotions, you know, and, uh, you know, like facial expressions, body language, you know, within a group. So I think the technology is getting better and better in terms of picking up on the cues and Mm. reading them mostly accurately. Mm. The part that I think is still going to be a while and coming will be the the context, right? You know, like, what does it mean? You know, Uh. it might pick up on the fact that I seem angry, but, you know, drawing inferences about what that could be related to or what to do about it, mm-hmm. I think is, is a, a higher level of reasoning that doesn't, you know, really, I don't, I haven't seen good examples of yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for that reason, um, at the moment, probably the best opportunities are for uh, tools that could help uh, pick up those cues and and provide them as a like a dashboard or an input to a mm-hmm. human decision maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you know it could be that I'm giving a presentation, but the group is too big or I can't see everybody or whatever you know the situation might be. But I could have you know this input saying, you know what, people seem to be kind of checking out. You know they're doing other things or you know they're asleep or whatever it might be. You know that then I can take in um, and incorporate and use my judgment about um, that. I think that is the biggest opportunity for us at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I could definitely see it just identifying, you know, things such as if someone is mad, like you said, you know, that's good feedback for the facilitator or the leader of the group to then get that information and maybe ask that person, hey, it seems like you, you're mad and frustrated. You know, is there any, is there something that you're frustrated about? And maybe we can help you out, you know, make you feel happy mm-hmm. again. So something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Or it could be that, you know, the, the leader gets that input, but already kind of knows some contextual information and, and knows what that's probably about mm-hmm. and whether mm-hmm. it's a problem or not. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. That's really, really, um, yeah, really interesting. So uh, how about the metaverse? Because so, <laughs> I know that uh, you're also getting into the metaverse too. Um, so where do you think the future will be, the future of the like teams within the metaverse, you know, and I think one of the things I heard a, um, what was it, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he was on a podcast with Joe Rogan, and he started sharing some of the things that they're working on and where you can be in these suits, right? And you could like, you know, there's a more sense of connectivity, you know, if you're mm-hmm. like, let's say meeting with a team, you know, right. you could see people's facial expressions better, you can see their body language. So 
Yeah, I think it's really unique and interesting. But what do you think the future of you know uh, teams and the metaverse is going to look like? Well, I think it's really exciting. I mean, clearly there's some kind of kooky stuff going on, but <laughs> uh, I think that, uh, you know, because right now, you know, one of the debates, ongoing debates is sort of like return to office versus remote work and what's the policy and et cetera, et cetera, and all these different points of view about whether or not teams can collaborate remotely. Um, you know, my point of view is that teams can absolutely collaborate just as well remotely, but they have to adopt the right practices. And I think mm. some of the technology that you're referring to and that is being developed, you know, very rapidly is going to help that, right? So instead of sitting here at my computer and trying to maintain good posture and stay close to my microphone so that you can hear me and see me, um, you know, with these technologies, I can just be sitting wherever and I can um, experience you as sitting near me, or we could move around in space, like as if we're in an office building and I could go see you in your office and see if you're busy and drop in on you if you're not, or, you know, all of the things that I think people feel like are important parts of the experience of being in a shared environment together could be duplicated uh, to the degree that they're helpful, you know, for facilitating coordination and collaboration. Um, and so I, I think it's, I think it's exciting. And the, and the reason why I'm excited about the role it can play in facilitating, you know, remote work um, continuing is just because of the opportunities it gives to other, you know, to people um, and to organizations, right? Mm -hmm. um, to be able to access talent um, and and for individuals to access uh, job opportunities, but live where they want to live. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, I could definitely see that. You know, like it could make things a lot more efficient as far as and actually improve just instead of you know, maybe instead of just us doing a Zoom podcast, right, we could do it through the metaverse where we're sitting in front of each other and it feels like it's real, but it's not. And we can be far away. You know, you're in Pennsylvania, I'm here in mm -hmm. California. So I think that's right. great. Do you see any downsides of using the metaverse for, you know, teams and the workplace? Well, I mean, I think with any technology like that, it could be abused in certain ways, certainly. Um, you know, you wouldn't want it to completely take the place of any other sort of interaction. You wouldn't want people to be socially isolated in ways that would deprive, you know, their you know, social um well-being, their mental health. Um you also, again, hear about some of the darker sides of what people are trying to do, um, you know, with these technologies. And so certainly you wouldn't want people to be more exposed to some sort of abuse, you know, mm. because the metaverse is wide open and it's the Wild West mm. um, kind of thing. But I think that... Um, you know, I, I just I do see a lot of the benefits that we started to see a little bit in the pandemic when uh, organizations were forced into, uh, you know, having everybody go remote. We saw some benefits for, you know, clim the climate. You know, we saw benefits for uh, reducing traffic congestion, et cetera. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that, you know, those things could um, be revived and expanded if we had better technologies that, you know, enabled people to meet. Uh, without having to physically go to the same location. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that being said, you know, I saw a, what was it? Oh, is it 
uh, a talk that you gave at the World Economic Forum. Wow, congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, that um, a few funny. years ago. And then you talked about how 9-11 could have been prevented if the teams, the intelligent um, intelligence community uh, worked together more cohesive, mm-hmm. cohesively. So um, can you talk a little bit more um, more about that? Yeah, I, that was really, that was pretty early on in my career. Um, my advisor for my postdoc was mm-hmm. a was an advisor to the director of the CIA at, at the time when 9-11 mm-hmm. happened. And so we were actually called in to do some research on what the issues were. And there, I think, you know, technology, as we've been discussing, could be part of the solution, but there are also have been in the past, and I think to some degree remain, you know, some social um uh, barriers as well, right? So different agencies, different classes of professionals who, uh, for you know, have more mental barriers around, you know, who um, is worth, you know, including in conversations, who has useful information, whom they should share information with. We certainly have a whole very a complex system of classifying information, which also creates um, additional barriers uh, in in many cases for some of these collaborations because of, you know, the need to restrict access to sources and methods, right, Uh, to protect those who are um, gathering that information, but it can definitely impede uh, the coordination needed to prevent stuff from happening. So it's a it's a tricky problem in terms of figuring out what level of access and how freely to share information. And technology both uh, creates complications with that as well as um, potentially uh, helps. Um, but I think that perhaps, you know, as we do figure out how to thread that needle of, um, you know, having this technology that gives us access to everybody in the world, together with the information security layers that are necessary for um, some sorts of collaboration to happen, maybe that could actually enhance uh, collaboration, even in those environments where there are these, these institutional barriers for for good reason. Um, If we didn't have to worry about people overseeing or overhearing and seeing or, um, you know, getting access to data they shouldn't, um, that might make it easier for people to then talk about the things they can talk about. Right now, though, I know that the professionals who do that work go to great pains to protect the information, and it makes it harder to collaborate sometimes. Mm -hmm. So what is the solution? Is it to you know, create a database, like you're saying, where uh, information is, you know, more easily accessed? Um, Is it, you know, being more open between each other and having more trust? You know, uh, what is the solution once it comes to like really sensitive agencies like that? I think, I mean, I think the opinions on what to do about it um, cover the gamut. When I, so when I was working in the, um, in that setting during my postdoc, at times I did think to myself, you know, it feels like the bad guys have all the information they want. It's only us that that we don't have the information. So, you know, and I have heard people, um, you know, express the opinion, maybe we should just get rid of all of the, all of the classification you know, system, Mm -hmm. right? Because of all of the leaks and all of the um, ways that the information gets out anyway, and all the ways that it impedes us from doing what we need to do. 
I don't know if um, that's really, really the realistic answer, just because, I mean, who would ever want to work uh, in some of the roles that they do now if they're if they weren't protected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, people's lives are at stake uh, with some of these information leaks. And if, if their identities revealed to folks who would want to hurt them, if they knew uh, what their what their role really was. And so we wouldn't we wouldn't want to do that. If we had, you know, just the perfect, you know, information security system that could really protect uh, the um, critically important information, I mean, that would be ideal. Mm-hmm. But we know that there's always smart people on both sides of the uh, of the um, issue, right? The mm-hmm. um, smart people trying to undermine what the smart people came up with. So it's hard to imagine how we're ever going to get away from that. I mean, I didn't give you a pat answer to uh, the question you asked me because I don't think there is one. Mm -hmm. Um, But hopefully, I think maybe I'll say this. I think that there are a lot of these barriers that are put up that maybe are not necessary. Uh, You know, perhaps we've expanded them more um, than we need to. And if there was a way to sort of trim them back down to the essential um, to enable more collaboration. And this is, I mean, we're talking about the intelligence community and the government now, but you could even say that for organizations. I mean, I've Mm -hmm. worked with organizations where they might have one division working on products that they think are going to be, you know, just the, the next, you know, gangbuster. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they won't tell other people in the organization about it, right? Uh, You might have people working in parallel on the same problems and they don't even know it. Um, And I think that the fundamental issues are kind of the same across those two settings where um, people are um, estimating the cost of information getting out to be very, very high and underestimating the cost of the ways that they're impeding coordination and collaboration as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, there's typically, I'm sure there's been distrust between the sides in the future where, you know, one side kind of used that information in a way that um, maybe hurt the other side. And so what if, you know, maybe two leaders come together and hash things out and try to figure out what's best, you know, because at the end of the day, the goals are aligned, you know, which is protect people in the society. And so, you know, understanding that I think could, could help, you know, just communicating. (laughs) Yeah. And again, just kind of being aware of, of what, of the cost of these different Mm -hmm. decisions. Um, We know that building trust, I mean, it can take forever to build trust with somebody and it can take like a moment to lose it all. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's kind of this asymmetry, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that's definitely true, even when we're talking about all this information security stuff, but just recognizing that, you know what, when you're dealing with a whole organization, they're going to be individuals and, you know, certain, um, you know, small events that happen that um, erode trust and whether or not we let that tear the whole thing down, I think is an important question for leaders to be very cognizant of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if you were to like, and this is just out, out of curiosity, if you were to create, like, let's say the most ideal team, the most perfect team, you know, what would that look like? You know, where would you start? Tell me your thought process of how you would go about creating a high performing team. And and let's just say for business. Okay. Well, I mean, so I think I would think hard about the qualities of the individuals to start with, right? So, 
you know, of course you want to bring together people who have complementary expertise. So depending on what I'm trying to do, you know, figure out like what, what's the knowledge base I need and find those people. But on top of that, um, something I focused a lot on in my research is the importance of collaboration skills. And so I would want to also make sure that they were people who were, um, you know, a interested in being a good collaborator and, you know, seem to have at least the basic capability um, to communicate well. Um, and I think that I would probably emphasize a lot the motivation above all else, right? That, mm. you know, even if, you know, whatever, we all like mess up, forget to tell people something or make a, make an assumption, but as long as people are open to, you know, learning um, how to uh, collaborate better and are trying to, I think that's, that's the most important thing. Um, and so I would, you know, try to pull together this, you know, this dream team that has this combination of skills. And then I think, um, you know, having um, the ability to collaborate, you know, both remotely and sometimes, you know, face to face is important. So I don't mm -hmm. think I would um, focus on whether or not they were, you know, right near me. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, I would want to, um, you know, work with people who are open to collaborating um, asynchronously and remotely, uh, just because mm -hmm. I think probably if it's this, you know, smart, creative group of people, they're going to have a variety of things they're doing. And so do I, you know, and so some of it will involve our collaboration and some of it will involve other things. And that will actually probably enrich our collaboration because we'll have broader networks and other, you know, ideas that we can bring into the work that we're doing together. So I guess, you know, in, in sort of general terms, that's kind of, um, you know, where I would start, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if we can get some of these, you know, metaverse suits or whatever, <laughs> like all the better. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, and in fact, you know, I think I probably do work with a team, not unlike uh, the one I'm describing. I'm, I'm really lucky. I have a variety of different collaborations I do with people who are pretty good at it. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, um, some of the things you mentioned there is number one, expertise. Number two, um, having someone that's a collaborator, people with great collaboration skills can communicate. Number three, having the right motivations. And then number four, being able to bring in creative people, you know, and then it doesn't matter where they're physically at. It could be hybrid. So mm -hmm. um, you mentioned collaborative skills. How do you identify, like if someone's interviewing someone and they're like, yeah, I have great collaboration skills. Like, how do you know that they have great collaboration skills. What are some signs or some maybe questions that you could ask? Yeah, I think um, I think it's easier to pick up on than people may realize, mm. um, especially once you kind of get used to, you know, if that's a, a focus that you have. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly tests and we use tests in our uh, research, but, mm. uh, and the thing that we test is this thing, um, this ability, social perceptiveness. So uh, social perceptiveness is a skill that is part of the broader category of social intelligence. And it really 
relates to the ability to pick up on subtle uh, cues and draw inferences about what others are thinking or feeling or or even anticipate how they might respond um, mm -hmm. to something that you're about to say, for example. Mm -hmm. And so people who are um, socially perceptive, you know, when you're interacting with them, if you're attuned to it, you will, you will notice that like, mm -hmm. uh, they will notice that, oh, you seem uncomfortable. Oh, I guess the uh, air conditioner, you know, is a little cold, let me turn it down, or you're squinting, let me close the shade because of the light that, um, you know, they're picking up on cues mm -hmm. that um, signal to them what the other person is experiencing um, in ways, you know, that are relevant uh, to how they're interacting with each other. Uh, they might also uh, anticipate something you need to know. This is really helpful in collaboration, especially uh, remote collaboration, because, you know, they're going to figure out, oh, you know what, like, you know, so-and-so wasn't part of that conversation. Let me let him know mm -hmm. that we talked about this thing, you know, and now this, this other thing is going to change um, or whatever the situation might be. Uh, so that I think is, is a, a key one. And there are other uh, pieces to social intelligence around um, then managing uh, social interactions that use that information effectively or managing, uh, you know, how you express, um, you know, different ideas or, or feelings, but they tend to be correlated with each other. So like mm. people who are good at picking up on and drawing inferences on cues also tend to be good at the other things. Um, and so you can, you can fairly readily pick up on these things through even a set of interactions when say you're interviewing somebody for a position and say you're emailing back and forth and then mm -hmm. maybe there's another call to set something up and then there's a meeting. Usually through that set of interactions, some, some things would have happened where mm -hmm. somebody would have been a little bit like not paying attention or they would have been attentive to things that would, um, you know, things that they could do that will make the interaction go more smoothly based on cues that they're getting from the other person. Mm, I see. And then in order to recognize those cues, you probably need to be, you know, being able to uh, pick up on things too, right? To be perceptive of those things. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. So you yourself. Yeah. And I suppose that this all assumes that you are. Although I would say that if I really wanted to figure that out about somebody, I could probably set up a situation mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, if this person is um, socially perceptive, they will probably respond, you know, in a certain way. And if they're not, then they won't. Right. Um, you know, like if I'm in the middle of a meeting and my phone rings and I pick it up and I start talking and it's clear that it's a personal conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're sitting there with me, what do you do? Right. You know, and mm -hmm. probably you say, oh, mm -hmm. let me step out if you need a minute or, you know, whatever, you know, depending on, you know, the context, if there, if there's an easy way to do that, or maybe, uh, you know, if you can't get out of earshot, well, you'll get busy with your phone and not be paying attention to whatever they're talking about, mm -hmm. um, you know, depends on the, again, the situation, but picking up on that and the fact that you should change what you're doing is like the key thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm reading this book called Buy Back Your Time. And one of the things mm -hmm. uh, he talks about is, and he learned this from someone else is before he, he hires someone, he says, uh, or he, 
he uh, it's like working with someone before you actually work with them. Mm -hmm. So he had, he gives them sort of like a test case, you know, or a test task where they do it over a certain uh, amount of time. And then based off of, and he purposely makes it vague, right? So like if he's hiring for an administrative assistant, Mm -hmm. um, he will um, give them a task similar to like, uh, send Chris a gift. He's a client of ours and then keep it at that. And mm-hmm. so if like the administrative assistant starts asking him a bunch of questions on what to do, then he knows that's probably not the best fit, you know, because he wants someone that can think for themselves, that is more critical, mm-hmm. like a critical thinker that could mm-hmm. think on their feet. Right. And so um, it seems like giving someone a task or a test task could, could really help, you know, identify if they're a collaborator or not. Yeah. No, absolutely. And again, I think a lot of these things, if you have the right, you know, task, like Mm -hmm. in the example you gave, it'll give you the input you need to get a sense of that. Um, And I think actually what I like about your example too, it's, it's something that is, is kind of part of my research, um, but you know, not a a central theme, but this um, idea that there are actually really good and valid ways to assess skills in people that um, a lot of hiring processes are done really badly and don't make use of mm. ideas like the one you were just describing. And instead, mm. you know, they want to know like, oh, what school did you go to? Or what mm. was your last position? And all kinds of things that are very noisy signals about, you know, what your capabilities really are. And they also mm. limit opportunities for people who don't have those things on their resume, right? So mm. um, I'm a big advocate of figuring out what qualities you need your collaborators to have or your employees and finding really, you know, insightful and, and valid ways to assess them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how, um, you know, I personally believe the hiring process is a little outdated, you know, it's mm. especially after hearing some of the things that he says, and I've heard in the past too, but he just kind of gave some real life scenarios that, he did. Like, for example, he was hiring, I think, a chief marketing officer. And um, he the person sounded really great in the interview, said the right things, really liked him. And then they had him do a test task to present a plan on how to, you know, uh, get marketing around to his team. And so they're all sitting there and um, he presented it really well. And then they started giving him some feedback and he seemed really resistant to the feedback. Like, you know, he was uh, at some point just being aggressive back to his team. So he's like, Hey, that you got to work well with others, you know? Yeah. And so just something like that, just a test cast task could save so much time on the back end, being able to, you know, um, weed out the people in the beginning versus spending mm-hmm. all this time training them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hugely expensive. I mean, mm-hmm. to make, you know, many hiring mistakes. I mean, you can't, you can't necessarily figure everything out in advance, but you can figure out the big things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so collaborative collaborative skill is, is increasingly one of those things, I think, in more and more jobs. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, talking about collaboration and, you know, someone being able to, someone that's very perceptive and can pick up on cues. You mentioned, I think, in your research that um, many, most of them are women, right? And so a team with more women tend to do well or better, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's something um, early on in our research, uh, the correlation between the proportion of women and collective intelligence um, was something that that turned up. And it was not something we were initially really looking um, <laughs> to examine. It wasn't a hypothesis we had. And in fact, the first study when when that showed up, I, I was a graduate student who noticed it in the data. And I was like, oh, you know, that's might be a spurious correlation. Like, I don't think we should make a big deal of that, but then it would show up again and again. And mm -hmm. digging into it is where we actually then got into this role of social perceptiveness because it, it turns out, you know, on average that women tend to score higher on tests of that type of skill than men. Mm -hmm. um, and the reasons for that are, um, you know, kind of multifaceted, you know, there's, there's definitely a biological component where there's some studies showing a correlation between testosterone, um, both like, uh, exposure to prenatal testosterone, as well as even, um, you know, situationally when you uh, prime aggression by creating competition or threat, uh, you tend to suppress people's ability to pick up on, you know, lots of cues in their environment. And so, you know, so there's this biological component for, you know, women having on average, less testosterone. So mm. um, that's that's one piece. But there's definitely a social learning um, aspect to it as well. You know, in mm. terms of the the roles that girls and women tend to play. You know, in most societies, and the fact that they're expected to kind of be more attentive um, mm. to others' needs, and so then they learn and are reinforced for doing that. So the fact that this shows up in our data is sort of you know reflecting the culture, mm -hmm. um, and it turns out that teamwork um, benefits from this as well. But all that said, I know lots of men who are great collaborators. And as I was saying earlier, uh, I think motivation plays a huge role in it. So I think primarily if people are are motivated and really think that's important, they're likely to do it well. And women, I think, historically anyway, have placed more importance on it. So that's why we that tends to show up in our studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that, you know, women biologically probably are more inclined to be socially perceptive and then socially as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm sure like, you know, being able to identify the right mate, you know, because if, mm -hmm. um, if they're going to spend their life with someone, you know, and they want to make sure that that person is the right fit to help raise the child and, you know, to provide for the family. So maybe that has to, uh, maybe that has a little bit to do with it too. Mm. Although on that score, I mean, men also need to be careful like about the mate that they would choose. Um, right. So, I mean, certainly that could play a role, but in addition, you know, if you're uh, thinking about evolutionary sorts of explanations, you know, the well-being of the children as well as the older members of the family would be um, in part dependent on having, you know, a wife and a mother and a daughter who are attentive, uh, you know, to the needs of these others who might need more care. Um, and mm -hmm. <clears throat> so there'd be an advantage to the family um, to have women who are better at picking up on these cues, especially when people especially like small children, for example, can't express them clearly themselves. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you, f have you found like, is the makeup of the team the same across different sort of settings? You know, like, for example, if you're trying to build, let's say, I think one of your um, studies is on like building a, 
uh, studying a high performing video game team versus like, let's say you're building a team for the military or you're building a mm-hmm. team for business. Do they differ across different settings like that? Well, so we have uh, studied collective intelligence across those settings, as it sounds like you, you've you done a lot of homework uh, in looking at all these papers. Uh, and we do find that the basic components are very similar. I mean, clearly the content of the expertise of the members is going to be different um, in those different settings. But assuming, okay, you have a, a certain uh, content expertise that you need and you have that covered uh, across the different members, the other components are pretty similar uh, Mm. in terms of, you know, these um, ability to collaborate, as we've talked about. Another one that we uh, tend to see in a lot of our studies is cognitive style diversity. So uh, in addition to somebody's expertise, we all tend to have a primary cognitive style or a way that we tend to organize information in our own mind, both in terms of how we take it in and also how we express it. Uh, some people are much more um, holistic and visual visualizers. You know, they think in terms of images, others are more uh, linear in terms of thinking uh, analytically and breaking things down into parts. Uh, and so having both of those kinds of cognitive styles in a team is beneficial because mm. uh, there are different tasks, different parts of tasks, different phases of work that benefit mm-hmm. from one approach versus the other. So that's another input that seems to be um, true across different domains that having diversity um, mm. can be beneficial. Yeah, I think that's great because um, I noticed that in my business, you know, like I, I'm more of like the big picture sort of person, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I don't like details. I don't like, <laughs> you know, all those things. So, you know, when I'm hiring, I look for someone that's very detail oriented that can pick up the things that I left off. Um, and then I like to start things, you know, come up with the mm-hmm. ideas and then I don't <laughs> fully complete it. And so having someone mm-hmm. that can take it towards the end could um, could really benefit, you know, as far as the team goes. That I I think that's absolutely right. And I when I've worked with organizations um, who so these cognitive styles um, tend to be uh, aligned with different occupational um, areas. So, for example, the kind of analytical linear thinking is common in say engineering. Mm. Uh, whereas the holistic big picture thinking is um, maybe more common in design and um, you know more creative uh, sorts of uh, you know work work uh, domains and so mm. but uh, the two need each other right because right. what the um, what the analytical thinkers find is that you know they might be following some procedures um, but they're not really producing things that are creative or new, or they're not pushing boundaries. And then, you know, as you articulated, and I think it's insightful, uh, you know, thinking about these like big ideas requires somebody who then will think through the details to execute. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think both, both are necessary. And sometimes both can get really you know, exasperated with the other because, you know, mm-hmm. it can be, it's always annoying um, when people are, you know, uh, prioritizing something you don't think is, is as important, but if you recognize the importance, you can respect each other and value what, what you each bring. Mm-hmm. So is there like a perf, um, is there like a, a sort of like a team with the perfect sort of set of 
makeup of personality types. So like, let's say Myers-Briggs, for example, right? Like maybe is it important to have someone that's like an INFJ and then like ENTP and then like, mm-hmm. have you found personality types having a role in high-performing teams, like making sure the team has a uh, different types of people and that the types get along with each other? Um. So yes, I, I would say like analytically, we could probably, you know, document you want, you know, a mix of, you know, introverts and extroverts, you want a mix mm-hmm. of people with different levels of agreeableness, but you probably want, you know, mostly people who are similar in conscientiousness and etc. I mean, mm-hmm. down the line, but almost no team is going to be perfect, especially mm-hmm. If it's if it's a reasonable size, which most people find, uh, you know, if they're really interacting closely with, um, you know, some collaborators, then you really want like less than five people within mm. that size group. You're it's going to be very hard to have the perfect configuration of all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. Just mathematically, and so what it really means is you want to get the big things in place. Mm. So, and for me, that would be, you know, the, the right expertise, the social collaboration skills and cognitive style diversity Mm. and the rest of it, you want to, you know, really uh, get the team to think about, okay, where are our, what are our strengths, you know, Mm. in what ways is our composition ideal and which ways is it not ideal? And what do we have to be aware of, you know, Mm. in knowing how it's not ideal? For example, if we're all extroverts, chances are we're going to struggle for who's in charge. You know, if it's not already clear who's in charge, we're going to all struggle to try to be in charge. But if we're aware of that, maybe we can find ways to mitigate that. Maybe we can be in charge of different things or we can rotate who's in charge, you know, at different points in time or whatever, you know, the situation might be. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I'm teaching my, my courses, you know, that's what I try to get the teams in my courses to do is like, recognize no team's perfect. You're going to have some strengths and you're going to have some areas you got to be aware of some, some risks or some difficulties and have some strategies in mind for how to deal with it. Hmm. Interesting. So you said five is the number, like a five is ideal for. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, obviously a generalization, but there've been a number of studies that have looked at, you know, what's the ideal team size and looking at it from the perspective of, you know, where do you provide opportunities for everybody to make a meaningful contribution versus having, you know, the 80-20 rule where a couple people are doing everything and a bunch of people are doing not much. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at people's level of satisfaction, as well as just the productivity, you know, how many people do you have on the team and what have you produced? Um, the converging evidence points to, you know, five plus or minus two, which actually also is the size of most people's working memory, which is probably not um, a total coincidence, but really actually probably five on the, or less is in reality what most people find most satisfying. Uh, the thing though, getting back to our earlier technology conversations, uh, when we look at some studies where uh, collaboration is technolo- technologically mediated, especially if the tools are good, what we see is that we might be able to expand that number, right? Mm. Um, that while if we're having a meeting and there's, uh, you know, the meeting is a certain length, which means there's only a certain amount of airtime. If you have a certain number of people above that number, 
not everybody's going to get to talk, right? So mm-hmm. there, that right there is is some sort of a limitation. But if we're really good at collaborating asynchronously and making our contributions in other ways, well, then you don't have that limitation. Mm-hmm. Or if you know these like dream coordination technologies that I was talking about earlier, um, you know, came online, it could be that we would see an expansion of the size groups that can really be productive. But given our old evolutionary brains and you know current state of technology yeah the the rule of thumb has been you know five or less mm-hmm. for most things right so i'm just thinking about like you know not to get too political but our you know uh congress house of representatives uh-huh. where there's a ton of people you know mm-hmm. and so and everybody's technically on the same team which is how can we better america and our citizens or at least they should be thinking that way. (laughs) So um, so that being said, you know, like if you were, and it's so divided, you know, I think everybody can agree it's so divided. So if you were, you know, let's say you came in, you know, Anita, and everybody's like, all right, Anita, can you help us really work better together? Like, what would you do? Would you kind of put people in groups of five and just kind of like (laughs) work together from both, you know, ends and spectrums in one group? And like, what would you do? Well, um, I think in reality, when things do get done, that is how they get done, right? I mean, they have these committee meetings, but in reality, it's like a couple of people who behind the scenes get together and really, you know, broker what the um, agreement is going to be. And then it's it's rolled out. Um, and I, I think it's important um, to also be clear that a lot of times Congress in organizations, you know, a lot of other um, contexts, you have large groups in part because you kind of need buy-in, you need people to, um, you know, have had a say to um, sort of get to approve or disapprove of something, you know, and so sometimes in those settings, there's a role for those groups, but it's not really to really collaborate and hash things out. By the way, uh, definitely um, lots of data to show the role of women in helping Mm -hmm. that to happen, even in the current Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, So actually where I would start is to elect more women. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I think that could definitely help. I'm sure. <laughs> it couldn't hurt anyway. Right, or I don't know. I mean, hurt. maybe, maybe famous last words, but, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, just all, that's a whole other hour long conversation, right? Like mm-hmm. incentives matter. And mm-hmm. so right. um, I think one of the issues right now is that they are not incentivized to collaborate or, you know, to be cooperative. So Definitely. that's, that's on all of us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So just to wrap up, you know, I know you've done so much research. Um, and there was, there's probably been so many key takeaways, but if you had to sum it up, like what would, what advice would you give businesses and teams that, you know, if they understood this, um, it would have a tremendous positive impact in the world. Well, I think, um, actually, a lot of what we've been talking about points back to what it would be, which is that, you know, even as we were talking about hiring, there's a tendency to focus on individuals' accomplishments and how great they are. But I think increasingly, you know, it's hard to think of many organizations where people don't need to be able to collaborate. And so to really focus on that um, in bringing people into the organization. And then when you have a team that works well together, that is a huge asset. And there are so many organizations that 
you know, will mix and match teams or pull, you know, people from one to the other and not really allow them to, um, you know, develop that capability of working together and to leverage that capability, you know, for a longer period of time. If anything, people, because of, in part, because of technology and how easy it is to communicate, people are put on too many projects. I mean, mm. everybody I talk to talks about that. And so they don't get it get the chance to focus enough or really develop that teamwork. And I think many organizations are shooting themselves in the foot because they're not clear enough about what are their priorities? Where do they want people to focus and helping them to really develop that collective intelligence so that they can deliver. Mm -hmm. So that would be my, my message, I guess. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for being on Anita. I really, I can't believe it's already been an hour. Time flies. Yeah, but, um, definitely. Well, thanks. Thanks yeah. for having me. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Where can uh, people find you? So anitawooley.com uh, is my website or uh, I'm at Carnegie Mellon, CI Lab at Carnegie Mellon. Awesome. All right. Thank you everybody for listening or watching. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.